0: Years ago, I attended an important work-related conference. And to be honest with you, I wasn't looking forward to the keynote speaker. I didn't think she was a very good speaker, and I didn't think that I would get a lot out of her presentation. And as so many of us do in boring meetings or even in church services, I got out my phone And to give you an idea, it was a BlackBerry, so it was quite a long time ago, and about all you could do on a BlackBerry was send text messages, so I sent a text message to Lisa, and I said in my text the following, so-and-so is speaking, it's actually not as horrible as I thought it would be, and then I pressed the send button, only... I realized I did not send the message to Lisa, my beloved wife, with whom all of my conversations are privileged, as they say on the cop shows. No, I accidentally sent the message to the person who was speaking at the conference. Well, you know, I had her name and number in my phone, and she was on my mind, and well, Tell me I'm not the only one who's ever done that before. As you can imagine, when she got done speaking, I, I had some dancing I needed to do pretty quickly. I had to soothe over this, uh, this problem. Uh, and I, I saw her when she got done. She checked her phone and her messages. I had to attempt to make this person feel better about what I just said in my text message And I ended up saying something like, I promise that what I just wrote isn't as bad as it sounds. (laughs) I share this because in a way, that's what John is doing in this part of Scripture in verses 12 through 14. Um, After all, up to this point in the letter, John has been laying down the unvarnished truth about the people, about people who appear to be Christians, who think they're Christians, who say that they're Christians, but but who are not. As John points out, their lifestyles give them away, their unwillingness to obey Christ's commandments give them away, their lack of Christ-like love gives them away. He's come on pretty strong up to this point. And and in verses 15 to 17, he's going to come on strong again and warn them about dire consequences of loving the world. So I think that verses 12 through 14, um, in those verses, he's concerned about how the people in his churches will receive his Often blunt and undiplomatic words. The main theme of the letter, after all, as I've said over the past two weeks, is to reassure these Christians. But suppose their consciences are weak, are tender. They may start to worry about themselves. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I don't really know Jesus. Maybe I don't really love the Father. Maybe I'm not saved. If so, they need to hear John's words of encouragement in verses 12 through 14. First, in verse 12, John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He calls them little children again in the very next verse. All Christians, John believes, regardless of how long they've been following Jesus or how mature they are in the faith or how young or how old they are. All Christians are like little children when it comes to God's grace. When John calls these Christians little children, he is undoubtedly remembering something that Jesus taught him and his fellow disciples. What did Jesus say? Let the little children come to to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So according to Jesus, we all have to become like little children to be a part of his kingdom. What does that mean? Well, first let me tell you what it doesn't mean. I went to public school growing up, very secular, and I went to public university, Georgia Tech, very scientifically minded place. And I will be honest with you, at that time in my own Christian journey, I used to worry that modern science would somehow disprove the Bible. Now, I assure you, I have absolutely no concerns about that anymore but I did back then. And so back then, I found it encouraging to read about so-called scientific or natural explanations for some of the so-called difficult miracles in scripture. For example, I would I would read about how actually, it's possible scientifically for a human being to survive for three days in the belly of a fish. Or I would read about how, well, you know how Jesus walked on water? Actually, during that time of year, you see, that part of the Sea of Galilee was frozen over with ice. So he was walking on ice. Or maybe you've heard this popular one from a preacher at some point, because I've heard it before. You know, how Jesus was able to feed the 5,000 plus, you know, with just five loaves and two fish. Well, you see, all the people who came in the crowd, most of them had brought enough food to share. And they were so inspired by the example of this little child sharing his five loaves and two fish that, well, that inspired them to share what they had. I now understand that these Explanations are complete nonsense. Why would we need to find non-miraculous explanations for the miracles in the Bible? After all, if we already believe that God created the universe and everything in it, including our lives, and if we already believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, is it really so hard to believe that God could do all of these things lesser miracles that the Bible records. Of course it's not hard to believe, but that's not where I was when I was younger. So when Jesus tells us that we need to become like little children to enter the kingdom, I thought that he meant we needed to be a little gullible, a little naive, that we we didn't wanna think too hard about the tough stuff in the Bible, that we didn't wanna ask too many questions because it might shake the foundations of our faith. But that's not what Jesus means. Besides, the smartest people I've known, the smartest people I've read, the the smartest people I've met are, are the ones who happily believe and defend the complete truthfulness of this amazing book. Yet, they would be the first ones to agree that we have to become like little children in order to be a part of God's kingdom. Why? Because they know that when Jesus describes our need to become like little children in order to enter the kingdom, he's not talking about, you know, checking your mind at the narthex door before you enter the sanctuary. He's not talking about being intellectual. He's, He's talking about the shameless way that young children... Receive gifts. Think about it. When a young child asks for a Christmas gift or a birthday present or even when you're at the grocery store, moms and dads, you know this, little kids at the grocery store, when you go through the checkout line and they see all the rows of gum and candy and they want, 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 they want this and that. Oh my goodness, that was a struggle for me personally. Um, But anyway, they have no appreciation for how much things cost. If you're a little kid and you want something, guess what? You just ask for it. You don't think about earning what you ask for or deserving what you ask for or paying it back in some way or calculating the gift's value so you can give a gift of equal value in return. That's what us grown-ups do. Little kids aren't like that. They're like, gimme, gimme, gimme. (laughs) The more expensive, the better. The bigger, the better. Little kids are shameless And even if your son or daughter, I'm talking about a young son or daughter, gives you a gift in return, guess what? You got to pay for it because they don't have any way of making money. (laughs) Today is Mother's Day. Imagine if your mom or dad presented you with a bill for all the money that they've spent on you as a child over the years, not to mention all the time and trouble. Could we ever begin to pay our parents back? Of course not. Remember when you were a kid, for example, and you got sick in the middle of the night? What did you do? You went to your parents' bedroom. Now, it's Mother's Day, so let me ask this. Uh, Whose side of the bed did you go to? Your dad's side of the bed or your mom's side of the bed? Of course, you went to your mom's side of the bed. When I was a kid, I would go to her side of the bed, and I would just stand there, and I would whisper, mom, 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 mom. I wouldn't like nudge her, I would just, and then she would startle awake every time, you know. But she never complained about it. She would take care of whatever I needed. Clean me up, take my temperature, give me medicine, help me get back to sleep. Not one time did she say something like this. Brent, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning on the weekend. So my medical services are gonna cost you double time right now. She, not even one time did she do that. And, and when I was a kid, I never appreciated how much trouble that was for her. And I still don't, because after all, I'm a dad, and my kids didn't come to my side of the bed either. <laughs> See, moms, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to motivate your kids to treat you extra special today. But my point is, Little kids have no idea how costly a parent's love is, and that's probably for the best because otherwise we would feel guilty and ashamed and embarrassed for how needy we are, always needing things from our parents, always costing them money and time and trouble, always expecting them to feed us, to serve us, to always be working in our best interests. And that's why we have to become like little children to receive what John describes here in verses 12 and 13, which is the forgiveness of sins and the privilege of calling God our Father. Because as with little kids and their parents, we can't begin to imagine what it cost God to bring us into a saving relationship with him. God the Father paid an infinite price in order to do that. Why do I say that? Because it cost him the very death of his son Jesus on the cross. If we thought about that too much, our pride would prevent us from receiving this gift of eternal life. We would be filled not with joy, but with shame, embarrassment, and guilt. And God doesn't want us to feel guilty when we receive forgiveness from Him. He wants us to feel joy. Think about great. The, think about the Zacchaeus, the wee little man. He climbs the tree in order to see Jesus above the crowd. You know, he's a little guy, and uh, and, and so Jesus calls him down, and and Luke tells us Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy or think about the former prostitute in Luke chapter 7 she is crying tears of joy and so many tears she can actually uh, wash Jesus's feet and then she joyfully anoints his feet with expensive perfume or think about those dirty smelly shepherds in Luke chapter 2 who who are who are uh, privileged to see this angelic light show in the night sky and then they're 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 sent to the manger in Bethlehem where they can meet the newborn king and Messiah. Luke tells us they were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Like little children, none of these people understood what it would cost for God to lavish upon them this gift of forgiveness and eternal life and adoption as children. They only knew the joy that a a young child knows when he receives a priceless gift. Likewise, if God has given you his gift of forgiveness through Christ, he wants you to know that same joy, not guilt or shame or fear or regret. Let's notice something else in verse 12. It's not just that our sins are forgiven, John says. It's that our sins are forgiven for his name's sake, for the sake of the name of Jesus, which is another way of saying on account of Christ and what he accomplished for us through his atoning death on the cross. Why is this emphasis on what Christ has done important? Because if we're not careful will start to think that we're saved at least in part on account of what we do. I'm saved because I repented so thoroughly and completely of my sins. Or, I'm saved because I believed in Jesus, and my faith is strong and pure, and I believe all the right orthodox doctrines. Or, After we've been Christians for a while, we may be tempted to think I'm saved because I've proven to Jesus that he did a remarkable job when he chose me to be his disciple, right? When I was elected to salvation, he made a great choice because I have more than proven to him that I'm a pretty darn good disciple. I mean, I do a really good job following Jesus, I, I do a really good job fighting sin, overcoming sin. I do a really good job, you know, witnessing for him. No, that's what well, we, we can start to think that. And, and, and if we do think that as Christians and we stumble and fall into sin, which we will, then we feel guilty and ashamed because we, we, were, we are no longer believing in Jesus to save us. We're believing in ourselves and our own ability to resist temptation and sin. That kind of guilt that we feel does not come from God. It comes from that feeling of disappointing ourselves. Now, I'm not denying that there is a place for godly guilt over sin, and that guilt can inspire us to repent. By all means, I'm just saying in this case, that guilt you feel is not godly. It comes from pride because we have let ourselves down. No, none of us is ever saved on account of anything we do, but only because of what Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, don't misunderstand Of course we need to repent. Of course we need to believe in Jesus. And that is something that we do. But repentance and faith, which means turning away from sin and turning to Christ, believing in Christ, believing in who he is and what he's accomplished for us, that's like a a light switch being flipped, right? I mean, it's true that if we don't flip that light switch, guess what? We're still in the dark. But if there's no source of power to move electrical current across that wire and to energize that light bulb, we can flip the switch all day long and nothing's going to happen. We'll still be in the dark. Uh, the, 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 the switch isn't the source of power. The source of power comes from somewhere else. The source of power, what makes forgiveness and eternal life and grace and adoption into God's family and sanctification possible is what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. So our role in this process is really very small. <clears throat> and even after you're a Christian and you continue to find forgiveness as you continue to confess and repent of sin, you're still just flipping a switch. The power for that forgiveness and repentance and grace comes from Jesus, not yourself. Or consider this. (laughs) Say you're sliding down a steep, tall mountain. If you keep going, you're gonna slide off the side off the edge of the mountain and you're going to fall hundreds of feet to your death in the canyon below. But suddenly you see a vine sticking out of the side of the mountain and it's it's within arm's reach and you reach out and you grab hold of it while you still can. How much faith does it take for you to reach out and grab that vine? Not very much you're not going to take time to think through whether or not that vine is strong enough to support your weight. You're just going to reach out and grab it. And if that vine does end up keeping you from falling over the edge, you're not going to say something like, my, I am so wise for reaching out and grabbing that vine. And I am so strong that I was able to hold on to it and notice the definition in my biceps you know i mean you're not going to do that you're going to say thank god that vine was there that's what faith and repentance are like god shows you the means of your salvation he puts it within your reach and all you do is just sort of reach out and grab it that's not much <laughs> that's true when you first become born again And it's true as you live your Christian life. You know God is not finished saving you just because you're saved, right? That's just the beginning. God, if you're a Christian, God is continuing through his Holy Spirit to save you, to sanctify you within. And that's still a matter of what God does. You're just flipping a switch. Like I said, our role in the process is very small. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's nothing we do in the process of salvation and sanctification about which any of us can take credit or boast. Of course, little children don't care about taking credit or bragging when they receive a gift. They're just happy to have it. And John says we should all be like that when we receive God's grace. So that's my first point. All of us must receive God's grace like little children. But alongside most commentators, I do believe that the other two categories of people that John mentions in these verses Fathers and young men do represent different levels of Christian maturity. The the New Living Translation, I believe, gets it right when it translates fathers as you who are mature in the faith and young men as you who are young in the faith. And obviously John isn't just talking about men. He's talking about men and women and boys and girls and everyone who believes in Jesus. And you may wonder why in these three verses, John nearly repeats everything he says about children, fathers, and young men. And I guess no scholar uh, can really figure out why this is, except again, it's John's way of driving home his point. The members of his churches really are forgiven. They really do possess eternal life. They really do know the Father. They really are walking in the light. Finally, look at the second part of verse 14. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Who's the evil one? Satan, the devil. Now notice in verse 13 he He just says the young men have overcome the evil one, and he adds more information in verse 14. And I think that's because he's telling us how it is that these young men overcome the evil one. John says that their strength to overcome the devil comes from this fact. God's word abides in them. So what is this connection between the word of God abiding in them and defeating Satan. We need to know because this applies to us too. Well, first, let's recall what Satan's primary job is. Not his only job, but his his primary job. And the the name gives it away. Satan literally means the accuser. Satan constantly accuses us of sin. He reminds us of our past sin. He reminds God of our past sin. Of course Satan does other things too, like tempt us to sin in the first place. But but he wants to make us feel guilty and ashamed and embarrassed and defeated, which will rob us of the joy that we should otherwise be experiencing as Christians. Well, where do we see this? I'm going to share two passages of Scripture that talk about this accusing role. The first is in Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. I'm just going to read a portion of it, and it's going to come from the NLT. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, and the accuser is Satan, has been thrown down to earth. No one. Um, excuse me, the, the one who accuses them, that is Christians, before our God day and night. So you get the picture. Satan is accusing us before God uh, day and night. And they, that is those who are Christians, have defeated him by the blood of the lamb. Do you get the picture? John portrays Satan in the heavenly realm, saying things like this to God. Look at those sinful things that your so-called child, Brent, has done. Can you believe that? You can't, you can't possibly save him now. You know, he deserves death and hell. And so you need to condemn him to hell forever. That's the kind of thing that Satan is saying about us who are Christians. And Satan has this way sort of whispering it in our ears, too. I mean, you know, sure, Brent was saved back when he was 14 years old, and his sins were forgiven back then, but there's a lot of water under the bridge since then. Surely, you don't mean to say that he's still forgiven. Uh, or, or, you know what I mean? Like, and Satan is saying, you, you can't believe, Brent, that God's gonna forgive you now. I mean, after all, you know all. Do you, do, you, do you need me to show you a list of all the sins you've committed, Brent? I'll be happy to. <laughs> but no, John says, we Christians have defeated Satan by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, because his blood was shed for you and me, for our sins. Colossians 2.14 is the second scripture I want us to look at, 2.14 and 15. There, Paul describes our sins as a record of debt that stood against us, but Christ paid that debt in full on the cross. Paul says it was nailed to the cross, like our sins are nailed to the cross. We now owe nothing And then Paul goes on in verse 15 to say something interesting. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he's talking about demonic rulers and authorities, Satan and his fellow demons. Well, how did he disarm Satan when he nailed our sins to the cross, canceled our record of debt? How did he do this? By taking away from Satan the main weapon in his arsenal, which is to accuse us. He took it away. He's, he's disarmed because we have God's word and we have all these promises in God's word that our sins are forgiven. And the Bible also tells us what it means to have our sins forgiven. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. I find that this is Psalm 103, 12. And by the way, I find that really interesting because the psalmist doesn't say as far, as far as the north is from the south. You know, because you can travel north and because the earth is a globe, you'll end up going south again. But you travel east, you're always going east. You travel west, you're always going west because the earth is a globe. I don't think that's an accident. Uh, and so it's an infinite distance apart, right? Or, or how about this? God says, I, yes, I alone, will blot out your sins for my own sake. And get this, and will never think of them again. Isaiah 43, 25. Or how about this? I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Jeremiah 31, 34. Satan wants us to remember our sins. He wants us to brood over them. He wants us to to just feel guilty all the time. God doesn't remember them. I know I've thrown a lot of scripture at you. But do you see what I've done over the past couple of minutes? I have given you examples of ways that the word of God, the gospel, of, the, the, the gospel truth contained in this infallible, God-breathed book, in these words and promises, these, these words can defeat the devil. When he attacks you and me, when he tries to make us feel guilty and worthless and defeated and ashamed and discouraged because of our past. No, Satan, let me tell you why you're a liar, and it's right here in this book. In all of us, John says, even those of us who are young in the faith, even those of us who are little children. All of us can defeat the devil in the same way by using the promises and the words that are found here in this book. It's not for nothing that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter six calls God's word, what? The sword of the spirit. Are we using this weapon the way we need to God gave it to us for a reason. It's a sword. Let's use it. Let's defeat the devil. Let's defeat the devil right here at Tacoa First United Methodist. Amen. Many of you know um, I was adopted. My mom died back in 2012. I wish you had a chance to know her. Um, I wish she had a chance to know y'all. Uh, she was special. She told me something not too long before she died that surprised me. She said that for about two years after she took me home to be her son, she lived in fear. She lived in fear because she was worried that someday out of the blue, Someone was gonna knock on the door, someone from the government, someone from the adoption agency, and say something like this Mrs. White, we made a mistake. We're gonna have to take Brent away and give him to someone else. Now, for most of my life, I never knew that mom wrestled with that kind of fear. And maybe some of you adoptive parents out there can relate. But then mom told me something which was kind of funny. She said, I don't know why I was worried about that. After all, I wasn't going to let that happen. No one was going to take you away from me. I would have fought them with all my might if they tried. If they tried to take you away from me, they would have to kill me first. She said that. Because that's how much I love you. My mom said that to me. That's, <laughs> these are almost the sweetest words I have ever heard, <laughs> you know? They'd have to kill me to take you away from me. I loved you that much. They were almost the sweetest words. Because brothers and sisters, God says the same thing about you and me in his word. No one is gonna take you away from me. I'll fight for you and I'll even die for you because I love you that much. And then God, in the person of his son Jesus, did exactly that. That's how much God loves you, amen? The Apostle Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? If you believe it, will you say amen? amen. Will you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. hallelujah? hallelujah. Almighty God, we are so grateful. We are so joy-filled because of the love that you demonstrate for us. Remind us of that all the time. You've taken away our sins through the blood of Christ, through his death on the cross. Remind us of that when Satan comes to accuse us and try to rob us of that joy. But we have a weapon. Motivate us, inspire us to use it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Toccoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Toccoa First. We have live, in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see ToccoaFirstUMC.org for more information.